Uh, when Mike was giving his uh, communion thoughts, I was sitting there watching Amanda, and I thought, what a gift it is for our congregation to have this going on, and how beautiful it is to watch those, you know, that the, those words being put into another language. I just uh, appreciate that so much, so... Uh, as we begin, I want to talk about uh, missions opportunity, and this is a request I received from uh, churches in northern Tanzania that I used to be involved with directly. So uh, I think this represents probably over a hundred congregations in s small rural villages, uh, churches of Christ. They have pooled together resources to build a church office and training center. And here's a picture of that facility. A little backwater town called Misungwi. So uh, most of you will never go there. And, uh, but it's kind of a central location for a lot of our churches that were over there. So the facilities are gonna be used for leadership training, for Bible seminars to equip area-wide Sukuma Christians. It's another language that I find beautiful. Nojiwa mininga mininga gayesu komoji. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? And the, uh, that's uh, halfway around the world. Well, these facilities are going to serve as like uh, leadership training, kind of a hub for. Uh, Church offices, they're going to be running health care initiatives out of these uh, to encourage evangelism and discipleship area, uh, efforts throughout northern Tanzania. Uh, so this looks like some, an outdoor shower area and bathrooms that they've already built. So these Sakuma Christians, these churches have already received some help from various churches of Christ in the United States. Um, this request came for me from my buddy Eric Guild, who is supported by the Southwest Church up in Tigard. Uh, but they have a couple things they need to finish with these facilities. So they're asking for $1,000 to help with a couple different things. So one is it needs interior doors. So if they get $1,000, they're going to build the interior doors. Another is the paint inside and out to paint the facility here. And then finally, uh, if they have a little bit more that comes in, they'll slap a solar panel on the roof and uh, get a battery and some solar-powered lights to uh, light the facilities in the dark. So uh, these, this is a good work. I know that the funds are going to be used for what they say they'll be used for. Again, my family and I were connected to this work, this specific one, for 14 years. And so uh, this is the first request we've kind of run through our new missions policy guidelines for helping identifying and vetting works that we can recommend to the congregation. And so you can make out a check to the Eugene Church of Christ if you want to give toward this. And you can put it in this box up here in the front for this week and next week. There'll be a box in the front. The front box is specifically for Tanzania. The back box is our regular contribution. If you got questions about that, you can, you can talk to me or someone else. I don't know who that someone else is. but 
So, and if you're curious about our, our vetting process for our missions policy and guidelines, you can talk to uh, Van Mosley or JJ McCauley or myself, and uh, we can tell you a little bit more about that. So, giving opportunity, Tanzania, East Africa. There's just a way that we're, we want to be involved in what God is doing, worldwide even. So today, we are starting a new series. We are finishing up, we finished up the Unity Dreamers, kind of a little bit helping us understand some of our roots uh, in the restoration movement. And now we're getting back into our bread and butter, a good Bible study. And so we're going to be spending some time with our friend Peter over the next several weeks, mining this small epistle for some of the treasure that's in it. So I decided to call this series The Word Art of Peter because the five little chapters of this letter are chuck full of very rich imagery that beckons us to come off the sidelines to be a part of the story of God's mission to this world. Peter uses word images to quicken our imaginations and to paint pictures in our minds that will enhance the impact of his message. So with words, Peter dresses us in different outfits. He invites us to put on the clothes of an alien or a foreigner, the clothes of a stranger. He dresses us in the robes of a priest. With words, Peter transforms us into small infants craving pure spiritual milk. And he transforms us into living stones being built into a spiritual house. With words, we are transformed into sheep who have gone astray, a people who have no people to belong to, a people who have been neglected, who are wretched and lonely, who are isolated, who are suffering, a people who are sitting alone in the darkness. But in the word art of Peter, he also describes hope, a great shepherd and overseer of our soul who comes to us. He chooses us. We are born again in him, and in him we move out of darkness and into his marvelous, his multifaceted light, his beautiful light. In the word art of Peter, the desire of Satan, our adversary, the devil, is made known to us, revealed as being like a ravenous lion, circling the camp and looking for someone weak and alone, someone who is vulnerable and easily snatched away. And then with words, Peter arms us with the means of our resistance, the firmness of our faith in Jesus Christ. Resist him, firm in your faith. So that's the first part, the word art of Peter. You get that idea. The second part, living in the shadow of a hostile, something happened, I don't know, lost in translation, the shadow of a hostile world. Peter writes this letter uh, under threat of persecution. Peter writes this letter uh, in the reality of growing resistance to Christians. So the art of Peter, 
he's not giving us just pretty pictures to hang on the wall. He's giving us a real hope that we are meant to embrace, that we are meant to live out in our lives. By the time 1 Peter was written, it was clear that persecution was on the horizon. They were even probably in the middle of it, some beginnings of it. Because the Roman Empire in the earlier days, they had largely viewed Christians under the umbrella of Judaism. Now, the Romans didn't necessarily like the Jews or what the Jews were doing, that cult of people. But the Jews did have some uh, protections under Roman law. They were an official cult religion of the state that the state recognized. But now the empire began to view the Christian sect as something different than Judaism, something even more dangerous, potentially, something even less desirable, potentially, something that was beginning to draw hearts and minds away from the empire's totalitarianism. So 1 Peter was written on the eve and even the midst of serious cultural pushback, serious persecution. To begin with, this Christian persecution probably felt a lot like it does in our day, uh, a kind of disdain and unpopularity. Persecution began for the early Christians as something local, unorganized, sporadic. It's kind of we, what we see in Paul's mission, uh, um, Paul's interaction with Jewish leadership, then Paul's interaction with pagans. It was nothing organized at that point. And so Peter writes this message to help young churches keep their focus and to cling on the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. In fact, Peter wrote his letter before he was put to death. He was put to death somewhere around the year 64, probably in Rome. Peter was murdered in the first of a series of three state-sponsored and widespread persecutions of Christians by the Roman government. The first under Nero, A.D. 54 through 68. You can tell that was a pretty tough long season there. Uh, blaming Christians for a fire in Rome, using Christians as human torches to light things up. And then uh, Domitian, 81 through 96 A.D., and then Emperor Trajan, 98 through 117. Pretty big chunks of time that Christians were in the crosshairs. I think this makes the message of 1 Peter even more poignant for our world and our time today. You know, we may not suffer torture here or imprisonment or execution here in the United States, at least not at this time, but that is a reality for a large part of the world. Uh, but we, I think we can recognize the wave of culture is beginning to move beyond a practiced and cool indifference toward Christianity. Culturally, in the United States, 
we have arrived at a place where in many circles Christianity is largely viewed as a problem rather than the solution. So let me say a word about Peter's audience. So here's a, here's a map here. There's some, some of the regions. It's kind of Asia Minor. He writes to all of these different provinces in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, the Apostle Peter, uh, he it says this, writes to a Jewish audience. I disagree with that a little bit. I'm, I'm pretty sure from the context and what I've been reading that it's a mixed audience. There's some Jewish elements in there for sure, but probably even a Gentile majority in those churches that he's writing to. Uh, and then I would date this before 64. 64 AD is the time that he, he died. And so uh, uh, there's still an epistle after this. I, I attribute a genuine Peter authorship to First and Second Peter, although that there's some scholarly debate about that. I don't really care about that so much. So... But Peter reminds us that despite the present challenges of living among a people or in a culture that's hostile to the Christian faith, we do indeed have a living hope. We are not without a place to stand. So even though he was living in the shadow of a hostile world, Peter writes his letter from a place of vision, from a place of inspiration, and mostly from a place of hope. These are words of hope for a young church, young churches. Because Peter had discovered the secret of a life that works. Have you discovered the secret of a life that actually works? A secret of not just surviving but even thriving in the shadow of a culture or an empire that's turned against. So if we were to come up with a Petrin theology, trace Peter's theology from fishing boats on the shores of Galilee, through the Gospels, into Pentecost, and the book of Acts, and through the two letters that bear Peter's name, there is a common thread that runs through all of those stories and all of those texts. That common theme is the cross of Christ. The Christian life, according to Peter, it is a life that's shaped by the cross of Jesus. In Peter's own words, he says this, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Tradition holds that Peter was a primary source, an eyewitness source for Mark when Mark wrote his gospel. And we see that 1 Peter 2.21, there's a marked similarity between what Peter says here and the words that Jesus said in Mark 8, 34 through 38. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. For Peter, the power of the Christian life is tied to our ability to suffer on Christ's behalf. And the power of a cruciform life, it's able to carry us through anything this world can throw at us. I think the the temptation for Christians of any age, this holds true, but especially for our time, because we are from a very rich and very individualistic Western mindset. The temptation we face in our day and age, in our culture, is to reduce everything about our lives to questions of production and consumption. Your value is based on what goods you produce, what goods are society values. The things that we value more highly, we add a monetary incentive to that. The things that we don't value as much, that has a monetary value of something less. And then we're just, we're just invited. You never notice this about our culture? Like our value to this world. It's all about what you're going to consume. Whether in our advertising, it just feeds all of this. Whether you're talking about food or appliances or whatever it is, your value, your some value, according to the way our culture functions, is based on what you produce and what you consume. That's a problem. See, we live in a, I guess you could call it a therapeutic culture where my own self-actualization, my own personal fulfillment, finding myself, finding my voice, finding my me, that is our greatest good. And ultimately, all the questions come back to the fulfillment of my own pleasure, back to questions of my own consumption. We pursue things like safety, and self-satisfaction and our own happiness above all other considerations. And so Peter's message to us and to the world is this. No, we have something better. Suffering. (laughs) Can we just appreciate that this is a tough sell. It's a tough sell for even us in this room. What the cross implies and what the cross invites us to, what the cross demands of you. It's a tough sell. I think all of us 
have it pretty good. All of us would like to keep it that way too. Even for most of us gathered in this room, I think of myself when I say these words. The reality of our lives, it proves that we're usually only willing to dip our toes into the deep waters of a cross-shaped life. We're just wading in it. We're just playing games with it. Because when we look at how we spend our time and our resources, who we include, who we exclude, all of these things, they tell a different kind of story. But for Peter, the cross of Jesus Christ, it's about a whole lot more than just pie in the sky and some distant after-death, get-out-of-jail-free card. For Peter, the cross we are invited to take up is a very real power for the problems of our real and current day-to-day lives. The current and real-life power of taking up the cross of Jesus. And I believe this is the key to understanding Peter's writing. A cruciform life gives you the power to overcome the seductions of this world. When you learn to die to yourself, that is a power that can save you from temptation. There are people in this room who've given themselves over to temptation so much that they've become numb to it. Your conscience is seared You've even lost your will to resist. There are slaves to pornography, slaves to gluttony. There are people in this church who are currently or have at some time endured physical and emotional abuse. The second key, a cruciform life gives you power to survive the storms of life. Power to survive the storms of life. You see, we do our very best to run and hide from storms, and rightly so. We don't, we're not seeking suffering. We run and hide from the storms of life, but we can only avoid them for so long. And I don't, I don't know what your personal storms are, but we all have them. The longer you live, the more you begin to recognize and appreciate them. Maybe it's the sadness of having a child who's abandoned the Lord. The sadness of a loved one who is sick and they're suffering, their health is deteriorating and you're powerless to help them. Storms of cancer, storms of Alzheimer's disease, storms. Maybe it's the long, slow fade of a debilitating depression. Maybe it's an anxiety that keeps you from sleeping. Storms of life come to us in all kinds of ways. A car wreck, a theft, a violation, a fire. But beyond that kind of storm, 
There's also storms of life that are caused by our choice to follow Jesus Christ in truth. Not just pretty words, but a life lived in self-sacrificial love. For Peter, the cruciform life, and by cruciform life I mean uh, a, a willingness to suffer on Christ's behalf. It is a power not just to endure, but to overcome. It's a power not just to survive, but to thrive. And this is the key to understanding Peter's theology. All the power we need, all the power we need is to be found when we take up a self-sacrificial life in truth. A life that Jesus himself modeled for us. And I think about this. Why was Jesus able to live such a selfless life? Is it because he got some magic ability that just helped him get it just right out from the gate? He was able to live such a selfless life. He was able to bear the pain and shame of the cross. There was a power behind that. It was humility and it was trust. See, Jesus could carry the burdens he carried because of his unwavering trust in the goodness of his Father. The goodness of a father who was for him. Even when this world would tell you otherwise. So in the introduction of his letter, Peter begins with these words. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. 1 Peter 1.1 So here we can see on the map, I've got some provinces pulled up, some churches that are known to have existed probably around this time. And uh, so you can kind of see those northern Turkey geographic areas, some of the communities that Peter was likely at work in. See, we hear a lot about Paul, but Peter also got around. This guy got around a little bit. Just from the first verse, we discover that Peter's letter, it was what's called encyclical, or it was a traveling letter. It was not just to one specific congregation or one church. It was meant to be passed around for churches throughout this area, and even beyond, I think he had that in mind. Uh, so, this first verse mentions five different Roman provinces. And then let's look at the words that he uses, the language that Peter uses. He says, scattered throughout. So, we're not told the means of the scattering of Peter's audience. We know that there, under the Roman government, there were forced relocations at this time. Peter could have been playing on some of that imagery in those words. So was it an active forcing out of people to go new places? Or was it just the randomness 
with which faith in Jesus Christ seems to spread. It just kind of pops out everywhere. We don't really know. How did it get over here? How did it get in this podunk town? Well, so-and-so's cousin Eddie, you know, brought it on the donkey with him to or was Peter referring, referring maybe to some kind of metaphorical scattering, a sowing of Christian leaven across the lands? Well, for my part, I suspect maybe it's some of all of that, and we can consider all of those things. Scattered. People who have been scattered. Leaven is scattered. Seeds are scattered. And then there's this phrase, strangers in the world. And this is especially poignant for us today because Christianity is coming out of a place where we were a cultural power. It was kind of the assumed bedrock for our culture. Um, Not that we were ever fully that way uh, as a country, but markedly different than our reality today. And now some of us are beginning to have to grapple with this feeling of being strangers in our own world, strangers in our own culture. That's a good place to be in Peter's mind. Not quite belonging, not quite fitting in. Misfits in the eyes of those around us. The the language, the Greek here is, is foreigners, aliens. And finally, the words of Peter, he uses this word elect, God's elect, and that's intentional as well. It's meant to connect us to God's election of Israel, God's choice of a special set-apart people. In fact, Peter uses a ton of Old Testament language and references even, even the imagery that he chooses to use. Hopefully we'll, we'll see some of that as we explore First Peter together. The word art of Peter has lots of Old Testament pictures. Let's just put it that way. Peter does this to help root the infant and young church into the bigger story of what God is doing in the world. To root the church into the story of what God is doing in human history. God has always been at work drawing people toward himself and toward each other. God is a community of love, and he draws people into community. As one author, Scott McKnight, says, the story of the Bible is creation, fall, and then covenant community page after page of community as the context in which our wonderful redemption takes place. Or as one commentator I'm reading puts it, God's love unfolds through Scripture, showing his intentions to construct a community of people who are devoted to him. So 1 Peter appropriates the language and pictures of Israel and uses it for the church. Peter demonstrates for the Christian community that we are a united people of God and we're called to be more than just a group of individuals who share similar beliefs. 
The demand of Scripture is greater than that for us. The demand of Jesus is greater for us. The community he expects us to have as his church. So, last week, like we talked about, Barton W. Stone said, we can't even, we can't build this all these different ways we're trying. In the end, it's only the Holy Spirit can, who can help us do that, right? Fire union, he called it. So I think first, Peter, the, the themes that they play out, the context is Christian community. So let me talk about the themes of First Peter a second. The context is a church. First Peter talks a lot about suffering, talks a lot about holiness, talks a lot about salvation. And how does that relate to community? How do those things build community? Well, suffering. How about the solidarity that we share in suffering? The burdens that we carry? Am I affected by the pain in your life? Do we shed tears over each other's heaviness, over each other's losses? over each other's needs. We're, com- we're invited to be a community that shares the solidarity of suffering together. Kind of lifeboat, maybe, uh, to survive all the storms of this culture around us, to help us become a set-apart people for God. Uh, holiness. This church is supposed to be about a common pursuit of holiness. And I think we suffer because a lot of our holiness ideas and uh, our efforts, even evangelism, whatnot, we try to do them as an as a individualistic sport. We are meant to be pursuing holiness as a group community activity our discipleship, our evangelism, all of that is meant to be a communal activity. I think we'll see some of that in Peter. And then finally, we have the commonness of a mutual hope and salvation. A salvation, in Peter's words, that can never spoil, perish, or fade because it's kept safe for us in heaven. We have that in common. We have that as the family of God, a hope of an inheritance with our Lord because of Jesus Christ. So Peter goes on to finish this introduction with these words. He says, You're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Um, God has always planned to be the lover of your soul. He's always planned for you to be a part of 
I, I know we can get hung up on this language. What does this mean, foreknowledge? Does that take away free will? I don't, I don't know a good analogy to explain this, and no doubt there's mystery in all of this. Um, you remember high school gym classes? I'm just on a complete aside right now. So if you have notes, and I'm, I've gone off the reservation. You remember high school gym classes where they'd have you, uh, they'd pick two captains, and those captains would, would choose the teams. And uh, I have scars from one particular incident where I was almost the last kid picked. Uh, in middle school, we were going to play dodgeball, and I was later than some of the other guys going through puberty, so I was a little chubby. Uh, I found my chubbiness again, uh, but, uh, and I was a little bit clumsy and slow, and so for something like dodgeball, you know, if it's like tug-of-war or something where they need some meat and some power, yeah, they'll choose that, but man, that kid's clumsy and he's a big target. And so I was the second to the last person picked. And then I got finally chosen. I was like, whew, at least I wasn't the last one. <laughs> All right, so you have that image in your mind. Now, suppose there are two captains. But instead of the captains choosing who's on the team, what if they said, you choose the captain that you want? And so, I choose the captain of my team. But then suppose again, that captain for my team is not just some random person. Suppose it's my dad. Who am I going to choose? I know, I know my dad. If I'm, if I'm going to pick someone, I'm going to pick my I was choosing my dad's team because there's a relationship. Love is a kind of knowledge, even a foreknowledge. Did my dad know I was going to pick him? Yeah, he knew that. Did I have a choice? Yeah, I had a choice. Uh, maybe that's a simplistic explanation. I, I don't know if there's value in that. Praise God. But God has always planned for you to be a part of what he's doing. And you get to choose that. Or you get to choose to walk away from that. I also want you to notice from this verse, this, this 1 Peter 1-2. Don't miss that all of the persons of the Trinity are represented in this verse. Did you catch that? God the Father who chooses. The Spirit who sanctifies and makes us holy in order to obey Jesus Christ to receive the sprinkling of His blood. It's a way that Peter is telling us He's finishing his introduction with these specific words. It's a way of, uh, uh, he's using to say, the fullness of God is watching us. The fullness of God is choosing you. The fullness of God 
is saving you. All right, so that's verse 1 and 2. We only have 23 more verses to go to finish up chapter 1. So I'll try to pick up the pace a little bit. All right, 23 more verses. I've got way more material, too. All right, you can adjust a little bit if you need to and get comfortable. So we're just, that's the introduction. Now let's get into the main part of the sermon. I'm just kidding. This one of like a cruel preacher joke that we can play. I am fully aware that the mind and heart can only absorb what the bottom can endure. So just endure a little bit more and we'll wrap up. So let me give you the cliff notes of today's sermon. And you say, why didn't you give us the cliff notes from the beginning? Some things in life you don't cliff note. When it comes to God, you don't cliff note that. But here's, here's to iter- reiterate the main points. Cliff notes from Calvin's sermon. Peter uses lots of word art, rich imagery to invite us into a living story. He paints these pictures to help enhance our experience of the message, to help plant seeds that help us remember and in remembering begin to try and live out in reality. The circumstances of Peter's writing was a growing persecution. He writes his letter in the shadow of a hostile world, a world that is about to take his life in upcoming years. The cross of Jesus, it is the key to a life that works, a power that can handle the temptations we face as well as the storms of life. Peter uses lots of Old Testament words and imagery in order to root us in the larger story of God's plan, of God's mission to save, to redeem, and to claim humanity as his own. The context that Peter writes to is Christian community. Christian community is the museum, so to speak, or the walls where we hang the living word art that Peter is giving to us. That's the context. And then what do we share as a community together? We share solidarity and suffering. We share a common pursuit of holiness. We share a mutual hope in salvation. So if we were to have a theme verse, at least for this week from 1 Peter, I would say it's chapter 2, verse 21. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Okay. So now for our invitation. Uh, Two things. The first invitation that I want to give you, um, I've pulled another preacher card. I've decided to change our Wednesday evenings 
because I want to enhance what we're doing in our study and of Peter. So I'm going to start a series where we're just going to go through all of the biblical texts that give us little windows into Peter's life. And we're going to try to build out a sketch of who this apostle was, who this disciple of Jesus was. So I'm going to call it Rediscovering Peter. It's just going to be sharing of of Bible verses, and then we're going to chew on uh, possible implications of that as a way to enrich what we're doing here. If some of you weren't aware, we actually do have a Wednesday night Bible study. We meet in the fellowship hall Wednesdays at 6 p.m., so come be a part of that if you, if you like and are able. And bring your Bible. That's your first invitation. The second one is this. It is the invitation. Of course, we, we, we want to pray for you. We want to help you any way we can. If you have a need, you can, you can share those. Dylan, you can come up, by the way. Um, you can put on the Lord and baptism. But the invitation I want to leave with you today is the tough sell of a life that is willing to suffer for Jesus. And, you know, I'm your, I'm your preacher, and I'm trying to figure these things out, and I'm trying to build a life around my faith, and I gotta say that what Peter is calling us to, inviting us to, it's beyond my own experience or my own heart and my own willingness. But the extent to which we surrender and give our lives over to the Lord, that is the extent to which we come into contact with the power that the Holy Spirit gives us to overcome temptation, to overcome the trials that this world is going to throw our way. There is real power in coming to that place of surrender before the Lord where we say okay Lord now your way but then we move past that into show me how to suffer and carry your cross show me how to prove myself faithful and loyal to you in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation, an adulterous generation. Show me how to lean into you, Lord. That's a tough invitation. I, I get it. But if we have a hope, uh, it is going to be found in learning how to do that together as a community. So uh, let's stand and sing together. Great sermon.